over the last seven weeks or so, as Michael said, we've been in a series called Characters, and we've studied some of the less well-known characters in Scripture, people like Enoch, Sarah, Aaron, Rahab, and others. Our pastor, Michael Davis, kicked off the series on July 6th, and as we close the series today, I want to return to something that he said that has kind of stuck with me over the last couple of months. What Michael said in that first sermon was, the choices that we make shape our character, and our character matters to God. This statement reminded me that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we have to answer the following question every single day. How will we choose to live amidst the challenges of our times? Because though we certainly live in a time and a place of unprecedented prosperity, that being 21st century America, we certainly still have our challenges. Sometimes these challenges are self-inflicted, our own failings and sins and addictions. Other times we're dramatically impacted by things that are completely outside of our control. But as Christ followers, how will we choose to live? What will we make our lives about? It's a very important question. This morning we will study the life of Gideon, and Gideon is found in the book of Judges, or his story is found in the book of Judges, the seventh book of the Bible. I have to say it's been a pleasure to get to know uh, Gideon over the last few weeks as I've prepared for this, and I hope you enjoy learning about Gideon uh, this morning. He is a, a fascinating character that lived in a fascinating place and time in history. If I had to describe Gideon in uh, one sentence this evening, I would say that Gideon was an imperfect dude who was living in challenging times that was used by God to do amazing things. Many of us know a part of Gideon's story, uh, particularly if we've been raised in the church. We know that Gideon uh, is best known uh, for defeating uh, the Midianites in one particular military engagement. He was used by God to defeat the Midianites with a mere 300 men, some torches, some jars, and a trumpet. And we'll certainly revisit that story this morning, or this evening. Sorry, I'm still on morning time. Uh, but it's important to note that behind uh, this well-known story, there was a complicated man. Some facts about Gideon that we learn in Scripture. First of all, he was a part of the tribe of Manasseh, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He struggled with a lack of confidence. Uh, we see this in his first interaction with the Lord, where he describes Manasseh as the least of all the clans of Israel, and himself as the least in his father's house. It's almost as if he was embarrassed by where he came from. His father, the best that we can tell, was not a godly example for him. And in fact, his father built idols in his home to Baal and Asherah, two of the prominent pagan gods of that time. Gideon struggled with fear and at times with his faith. When we first meet Gideon, uh, he is doubting the goodness of the Lord amidst his present troubles. And throughout the story, the Bible is clear that although Gideon is obedient, his obedience to God's commands is done amidst a lot of fear. Later in life, after his victory in the aforementioned battle, Gideon fell victim to his own pride and created for himself a priestly robe that was meant to be worn by the high priest of Israel alone. And the Bible says that this robe was a snare for him and his family. Lastly, the Bible said that in his lifetime, uh, Gideon had 71 sons by several wives. And tragically, um, after Gideon died, one of these sons killed the other 70 in a move to consolidate power. To the extent that we can blame that on Gideon's parenting skills, I don't know. Um, but sadly, he was not able to leave a godly legacy behind. Gideon was indeed an imperfect dude. On top of this, Gideon's times were not tailor-made for godly living. In Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, which some of you may have read, 
slide will highlight how often great innovators or leaders come out of circumstances that predispose them for excellence in a particular area. Think, of, think for example, of Bill Gates, who had unprecedented access to computers at an early age and then went on to found Microsoft. Essentially, the theory in the book is that our circumstances shape who we become as much as our natural abilities. Gideon's circumstances, however, did not predispose him to godly living or to leadership. As I mentioned earlier, Gideon's story is uh, found in the book of Judges, and this covers a period of time between the initial conquest of Canaan by Joshua and the rise of the monarchy under Samuel, Saul, and David. We do not have exact dates for Gideon for the time when Gideon lived, but we think it was in the 12th or 13th century BC. During this time, Israel repeatedly failed to follow God's commands and uh, was prone to disobedience and idol worship. The pattern would follow that Israel would fall away from God and God would hand them uh, over to their enemies, the surrounding nations, to be oppressed. After a time, the people would call out uh, in repentance and God would raise up a judge to uh, rescue them. At the conclusion of the book of Judges, the author writes, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Gideon was the fifth of 12 judges in the book of Judges and was raised up during a time of oppression by the Midianites. Judges 6.1 says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. During these seven years, the people of God were reduced to living in caves in the mountains and assembling a meager existence while the Midianites ransacked their land and stole their crops and livestock. Judges 6.6 6 says that Israel was brought very low because of Midian, a proud people reduced to nothing. Gideon was an imperfect dude, and as we just saw, he lived in challenging times. But there is no doubt that he was used by God to do amazing things. So the question that I want to ask today is this. If the choices that we make matter, what choice did Gideon make that we can learn from? What choice did Gideon make that enabled him to be used by God in such a mighty way? My theory today is simply this. When God spoke to Gideon, Gideon chose to obey God, and this brought glory to God. And there are two stories, two specific examples of obedience that I want to cover this, this evening. Specifically, uh, Gideon was obedient to tear down the idols in his home. That's the first story that we'll look at. As well, Gideon was obedient to follow God's instruction, even when it seemed a little crazy. But first, we'll talk about how Gideon was obedient to tear down his idols after a quick water break. We first meet Gideon uh, in Judges 6, 11. Gideon is approached by the angel of the Lord while he is in his father's wine press. And the angel of the Lord instructs Gideon that he is uh, to rise up in his might and deliver the people of Israel. Gideon seems to not know who he's talking to at first and is uh, skeptical to say the least. If the Lord is with us, he wonders, then why have we fallen on hard times? Furthermore, Gideon feels underqualified for the task at hand. Gideon asks his visitor for a sign and is given one. The angel of the Lord touches the food that Gideon has prepared with his staff, and the food then bursts into flames. Gideon then realizes that he has been speaking with God and builds an altar to the Lord. That very same night, God gives Gideon his first mission, to destroy his father's idols. And we'll pick that up in Judges 6, 25 to 27. It says, that night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with the stones laid in due order. 
Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And as we consider idolatry uh, this evening and how to apply the scripture to our lives, I want to focus on three questions. First, what is an idol or what is idolatry? Second, how can we identify the idols of our hearts? And thirdly, what should we do about them? Question number one, what is an idol? And my simple definition is this. An idol is something or someone that we put at the center of our life other than God. The people of Gideon's time had their Baals and their Asherahs, false gods made out of wood and stone. And while today we do not typically have carven images, we have plenty of false, false gods or idols. In their book, Breaking the Idols of Your Heart, Dan Allinger and Tremper Longman, the authors, highlight seven areas where we can often fall prey to idolatry. The first is just control, or the desire or need to control every aspect of our lives. Second are relationships that we put at the center of our lives. Third is our work. Fourth, various types of pleasure. Five, wisdom, or idolizing wisdom or knowledge. Six, spirituality, doing things just to be spiritual. And seventh, our physical health and fitness. Allender and Longman go on to say this. They say, Christians today face tremendous temptations to worship such idols of our heart. We go to church on Sundays, but during the sermon, we think about how much better life would be if only we had the money to buy our dream waterfront house or take that well-deserved island vacation. Even pastors may be tempted to worship at the altars of larger congregations, more tithing units, more honor and prestige. I'm sure, in fact, that many of you have been daydreaming as I've been speaking here, but honestly, I'm no different on many a Sunday. While these things that I've mentioned are not bad things in and of themselves, they become dangerous when we put them at the center of our lives instead of God. They become dangerous when we worship them at a heart level. Moses had warned the nation of Israel about the dangers of idolatry prior to their entering the promised land. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 31 reads, When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their lands, take care that you do not... Uh, that you do, that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. The book of Deuteronomy sometimes gets a bad rap because the story doesn't move very quickly. I know I've complained about it before. But Moses' words here are incredibly insightful. Often, idolatry starts with a mere inquiry. We see others pursue control, work, pleasure, etc., and so we wade into the waters wanting to learn more, wanting to see if these things are fulfilling. And in the end, the result is disastrous. We end up doing things that we never set out to do. For example, if relationships are our idol, you may end up putting um, all your hope and fulfillment within that particular person or persons and place on them uh, a burden that they cannot carry. And then that relationship is uh, severely damaged. Or if pleasure is your idol, uh, for example, you end up giving yourself to drink or drugs or other things, things that can be addictive and damaging to your life. In the end, idolatry often costs us a lot more than we meant to give. If we've identified what an idol is, then the next question I want to wrestle with this evening is how do I identify the idols of my heart specifically? This is a good question. 
And I've heard and read many different questions that we can be asking ourselves to help identify the things that we worship instead of God. And I'll mention a few of them this evening uh, as it may be helpful for all of us. First, what do you think or daydream about the most? What comes to mind when you need that mental break from work or when you're lying in bed at night and you can't sleep? Second, what do you hope for for the future? Is your hope in Jesus or is your hope in the perfect American home or the perfect vacation or the perfect retirement? Third, what are you jealous of? When you look at other people, what are the things that they have that you so desperately wish that you have? These are all good questions. However, for me, the question that I often find most helpful to ask is what makes you miserable? For example, perhaps it makes you miserable that you do not have more money in a nicer house. And you sit around and feel depressed because if you only had that ideal house in that ideal town with that ideal amount of money, then you would be happy. Perhaps in this case, your idol is material success and wealth. Or perhaps you are happy as long as you can keep your workout routine and get your exercise in. But then if you get hurt or sick, and you cannot keep your routine, you become a miserable person to be around. Perhaps in this case, physical health and fitness is your idol. Or perhaps you become miserable um, when the ministry you are a part of is not as successful as you would like. You're not seeing the results that you would want or that you anticipated. People are not flocking to your ministry and telling you how amazing you are and volunteering their whole lives to your cause. And so you feel unfulfilled. You feel like a failure. Perhaps in this case, ministry is your idol. I certainly have idols in many areas uh, of my life, but one idol I can definitely relate to is the work idol. Simply put, if my work is going well, then I can put up with a lot in life. But if it's going poorly, it doesn't matter how many other areas that God has blessed me, I still end up miserable. If I lose a big deal, my life seems to have no meaning and I am inconsolable. When I feel like I might not achieve the career success that I have set out to achieve, I get a knot in my stomach and I can't sleep at night. When others achieve acclaim and get the promotions or positions that I desire, I grow jealous and angry. When I have a long day, I become a tired zombie incapable of handling even the most basic human conversations. Just ask my wife, Rachel. You might say, what's the big deal, John? You simply care a lot about your work. And certainly, I don't want to deny the importance of going to work and doing an honest day's work and honoring God with our work ethic. But if Jesus is the center of my life and his kingdom is what I am all about, and if I've really been saved from an eternity without God and can now have relationship with God, then my life should be full of joy regardless of my work circumstances. Certainly the work idol is one that I can relate to. The third question that we'll deal with today with idolatry is this, and that is what should we do about our idols? We have a simple choice. We can tear down the idols of our lives now or we, continue, we can continue to live horrible, unfulfilling lives for years to come. It's our choice. God's command to Gideon was not, hey, Gideon, let's go out and save uh, Israel. And then when you get around to it at some point in the future, it would be great if you could deal with this idle problem that you have. Rather, the command was to deal with the situation now. And though Gideon was afraid, he was obedient. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So what does it look like then practically to tear down the idols of our hearts and of our lives? 
I think there are three main ways that we can do that. First, I think there are times when you have to physically destroy the idol. If pleasure is your idol, and you are into pornography, for example, you may need to throw your computer out the window. Or if, you, or if your money or possessions are your idol, you may need to be generous and give some or all of them away. Other times, though, I think what is needed is a dramatic change of perspective and a change of heart. Take my work example. An argument can certainly be made that in order to deal with my work idol, I should stop working altogether and should sabotage and destroy my career. And while at some points a job change may be, may be warranted, I, I really practically cannot just give up working. It's my job to provide for myself and for my family. And so what needs to happen is not whether or not I, I keep on working, but what needs to happen is that I need to change my perspective. In my life, God has challenged me to realize that my work is not a means to my own glorification, but rather it is a means by which God provides for me and for my family. What is needed is a change of heart. Thirdly, I think we need to uh, continue to put on the new self that we have as followers of Jesus Christ. Paul, in the letter to the Colossians that we began reading earlier, continues. He says uh, in Colossians 3, 9 to 14, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So how did Gideon's idol-destroying story end? Judges 6.28 continues the story. It says, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because the altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. A couple of quick points here as we conclude the story. First, Gideon was obedient, and God protected him in an unlikely way. Namely, his father, um, to whom the idols belonged, came to his defense. Where God led Gideon, he was faithful to protect Gideon. Second, when Gideon was obedient, the lie of the idols was exposed to the community around him. During the week, we have our community groups that meet, and I don't know if every community group does this, but my community group, once a month, will break up into men and women, and we'll share with each other uh, just our stories and our testimonies and our hang-ups and the idols in our lives. Sometimes it can be a heavy discussion, but I always walk away encouraged because I see other men uh, that have struggled with various idols but have overcome them uh, with the grace of God and with the support of others. And when I hear about those stories, the idols of my life and of my heart are exposed, and I'm encouraged to give them up as well. So example one of how Gideon chose to live a life that gave God glory, he was obedient to tear down the idols in his home. Second, Gideon obeyed God even when it seemed a little crazy. 
after the idol destruction incident, the Bible says that the Midianites and the Amalekites and some other uh, people were camped at the valley of Jezreel. The Spirit of God raises up Gideon to defeat this combined army. Gideon puts out the call and sends out messengers to assemble the army to fight the Midianites and the Amalekites. Gideon, like anyone raising up an army of God, does the old wolf fleece test, which we won't spend much time on today. But the quick summary is that Gideon tested God twice. He put a wool fleece out overnight, and he said, God, if you are with me, I want the fleece to be covered in dew and the rest of the ground around it to be dry. And it came to pass. That was not enough for Gideon, and he did the test again, except the second night he asked for the opposite scenario. And once again, God, uh, uh, God made it come to pass. Gideon at this point realizes that they're really doing this, and so he gathers his army together for battle. One small problem, though. God says to Gideon, you've got too many people. Judges 7, 2 and 3 reads, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. Wouldn't you love to be Gideon at this point? God says, send home the trembling and afraid. And Gideon's probably thinking, you know what, this is actually a pretty good idea. Maybe I lose three to 5,000 people, but at least we've got the scared people out of our midst. But 22,000, 22,000 people leave. I would have loved to have been standing next to Gideon when he received the news just to see the look on his face. But here's the thing. The Lord comes to Gideon and says, the people are still too many. Judges 7.4 reads, And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go, shall go. And anyone of whom I say to you, uh, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But the rest of the people knelt down to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others, every man, go to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. At this point, Gideon's probably like, really, God? Not only have you made a 99.06% reduction in my army, but you've left me with the 300 people in my whole camp that drink water by lapping it like a dog. We don't know a lot about these 300 men, but I'm guessing they weren't the special forces of the Israeli army. So what can we take from this? I think what we can take from this is that if we are going to live lives that bring glory to God and honor God, sometimes we need to be obedient to do the crazy things that he asks us to do. And the reason that we have to do this is that sometimes it's the crazy things that give God the most glory. I'll reread Judges 7-2. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are still too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Sometimes if God is going to get the glory, we have to be obedient to God and put ourselves in situations where God needs to show up. In a few weeks, we'll be celebrating Genesis' five-year anniversary as a church. The journey's been a huge blessing for me. I've grown here, and I've met my wife here. When I graduated in college in 2007, though, I wanted to get out of New England. 
I had been raised here and I had gone to school in central Maine and I was tired of the cold weather and I was tired of the New England attitude. To stay here and go to Genesis, which at the time was an evening service at Hope Christian Church, seemed crazy to the 21-year-old John Bandai. Around 2008 and early 2009, we began uh, looking at planting a new church, meaning that Genesis would no longer be an evening service of Hope Christian Church, but would plant as a new church with a new beginning. After several months of prayer and consideration as to whether or not God was calling us to this, um, you know, the team that we put together came back with a yes. And so another team was established um, to look into uh, how and where Genesis should be established. Our pastor, Michael Davis, had some trendy names for these teams, which I've forgotten, but I was fortunate enough to take part in both of the teams and see God move us to plant in Woburn. At the time of the plant in September 2009, many questions remained. How would Michael do as the pastor of an entire church and as, the, and as, as of the pastor of a, church, of a church plant for the first time? It seems obvious now he's done a very good job, but at the time he did not have any history with such a thing. Second question was why Woburn? Wasn't there a trendier, hipper place to plant a church? Third, how would we pay for this? Hope Christian Church was very generous in giving to us financially as we launched, but at some point this thing had to stand on its own. Would people come? Would anyone want to come to this church? We started with 60 to 70 people, but we didn't know if the church would grow. Lastly, would we even have a space to meet six months from now? Our first lease down the road at 16 Wheeling was month to month with 60 days notice. We could literally get kicked out at any time. It all seemed a little crazy, especially on that first Sunday in September 2009, when we did our first service with 60 people outside in the church parking lot because we did not yet have a permit to be in the building. So why did we do all of this? Having been fortunate enough to have been a part of that process, I know that the answer is simple. Because God told us to do it, and therefore we had a choice to be obedient. We had to give God a chance to show up and do his work. To have said no, to have played it safe, would have been to oppose an opportunity for God to bring glory to himself. But because we were, by God's grace, faithful and obedient, I do believe that over the last five years, God has been glorified in this place at Genesis. Even though we are a bunch of imperfect people like Gideon, God has sustained us and blessed us and grown us over the last five years. So what does this all mean for us practically? Practically, I think we need to ask ourselves this. In our lives, are we obediently following God to a place where God will need to show up and where God will get the glory? It doesn't have to be overly complicated. It could be as simple as sharing the gospel with someone or inviting them to Genesis. It could mean being a little more generous than we feel comfortable with in order to support someone or a ministry. It could be being obedient uh, to the Holy Spirit and talking to that person after church today that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. It could be uh, volunteering to serve at Genesis even though you are not entirely sure of how you will fit it into your busy schedule. It could be that you participate when Genesis plants its first church at some point in the future. In the end, it's simply a process of listening for God's voice and then being obedient to do what he is calling you to do, even if it seems a little crazy and even if it makes us a bit uncomfortable. So how does our story of Gideon end today? Judges 7, 16 to 23 tells us. It says, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands and all of them and empty jars with torches uh, inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, 
I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the count of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke their jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshetah towards Zerah and as far as the border of Abel, Abel Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon was obedient to take his 300 men to the battlefield, and God showed up. And as we close our time here this, uh, this, this evening, I want to encourage us to continue to be obedient and continue to push ourselves to a place of discomfort and a place of risk where we need God to show up. This does not mean that we don't prepare for the future, and it does not mean uh, that we are not good stewards of the resources and time and talents that God has given us. But the question is, will we push ourselves beyond our comfort zone to obey the commands of God and impact the community and culture around us? 1 John 5, 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God, when, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. If we are obedient to God, I can tell you that the journey will not be easy, but that God will be faithful and that God will be glorified in our midst.